Welcome to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt, along with Glenn Pacquiam. And special guest, Andrew Wilson. We're excited to have Andrew with us today. Andrew is a teaching pastor at King's Church in London and is in the States to present a paper at the annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society here in Denver, which is where we're recording from on location at the Sheridan Hotel. So we're excited to be here. Uh, Andrew's a great pastor and a thinker and the author of a number of books, including the forthcoming Spirit and Sacrament, an Invitation to Eucharismatic Worship, which we're going to talk about a bunch today. So welcome, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. It's we're, great. We're so glad to have you. So a lot of our listeners, I suspect, are not going to be super aware of who you are. Just we're on the other side of the pond over here. So <laughs> uh, give us a bit of a biographical sketch, sort of fill in some details for our listeners. Tell us about who you are and what you're working yeah, on. Yeah, sure. So I'm 40. I'm married to Rachel. We have three kids uh, who are nine, eight, and two. And I'm a yeah, teaching pastor for church in London. It was it's a sort of quite a lot, at least in British terms, quite a large church, multi-site thing, very diverse because of where we are in the city. It's evangelical, charismatic, mm -hmm. and come from quite originally like house churchy roots, but it's just yeah. the house church that's got big, really. Mm -hmm. um, again, at least in our round here, everybody, you sneeze and you've got a church of a thousand, but in right. Britain, it's not quite it's like that. It's a big deal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's huge. And it's just been, and I've been, I've only been a pastor there for two and a half years. Before that, I was a pastor in Eastbourne, which is a town on the sea in the South Coast for about 10 years. Before that, I was a management consultant. And I've also done some academic studies. So I have a PhD in theology and I write some books, including the one we're talking about today. So yeah, that's a, is that enough? Is that, that's a sort of, <laughs> I love it. You just throw, throw it all in there. Now you just did your PhD in New Testament. Tell us just a little bit about what yeah. you, you researched there. Yeah. So I did a PhD on the warning assurance relationship in 1 Corinthians, mm. which is basically Paul says, you guys are going to make it. And if you do this, you're going to be in terrible trouble. And how are we supposed to reconcile yeah. those things? That was, um, so it was all in 1 Corinthians, which I loved, but it took me six years. It's like oh, yeah. part-time, but it's a, <laughs> that's a long time to spend reading 1 Corinthians. <laughs> Ready to read other parts of the New Testament again. <laughs> well, I think just the biographical sketch that you even gave us gives us a sense that you kind of, you like to live at the intersection of several different things. I think that your book certainly is a demonstration of that. So oh, I'm, here's what I want to ask you. What in the world is you charismatic? It's a made-up <laughs> made, made word that I'm hoping... Okay, good. We we'll, love made-up words. Yeah, we love it. So tell us about the book. And really what we'd love to hear is the story behind the book. Mm. Where did this come from for you? Well, uh, I don't remember where I first came up with the word, but I, I think so. My history is I was I had some Anglicanism in my history as a child, and it was sacramental, liturgical, historical, mm. but very boring, mm -hmm. and I didn't engage with it at all. And it wasn't charismatic at all, at least in some Anglicanism sure. is, but mine mm. wasn't. And then I went to a charismatic church that was sort of bouncing off the walls and lots of <laughs> you know prophetic stuff and lots of spiritual gifts and saw loads. I've seen loads of sort of healings and miraculous stuff, but with almost no awareness that the church existed before 1978. <laughs> <laughs> And, and right. Which I, is the year I was born. So and the year I was born, which is probably why it came into my mind. But, but I think both of those roots had then lived in me yeah. for some time, but it was probably about six or seven years ago where I began thinking, I think this isn't just a personal thing. Right. I, I think there's a, a need for the church to bring together these two what I would articulate them as gifts. So the title, mm. the word eucharismatic is obviously is a sticking together of eucharistic as yeah. in we celebrate the Lord's Supper and charismatic, that is we use the gifts. But with the word charis in the mm. center, and right. the word charis is you know, the Greek word for grace mm. and kara is the word for joy. And, I, and so in a way, I've sort of thought that there's quite a complex 
play on words, at least that, that may be very self-aggrandizing, no, a play yeah. on words at least, which is trying to say, I think that when we understand the gift of God yes. in the spiritual gift yes. and the gift of God in the Lord's Supper and in the history of the church, actually, we can receive all of God's gifts. And yes. there are most Christian traditions, at least in the West, embrace some of those some. gifts and not others. So that's the, that's well, the heart. I, I yeah. loved in the book how one of the chapters is just on that, the grace, the, the charis word, and then the other chapters on the joy word. The, the, you know, some say chara, some say kara, mm. you know. Mm. But that idea of grace and joy being at the heart of mm. both streams, the sacramental stream yeah. and the charismatic stream. How, well, how I, you... think, I, I think they are, but I also think in my experience that wasn't always true. <laughs> right. I, I tell a story near, very near the beginning of the book of a, of a guy I know in the UK who was trying to explain why he wasn't a believer until the age of 20 because as a child, he'd gone into an old stone building and a guy with a very long beard was declaiming incredibly solemnly, my heart is full and my cup Overfloweth, and he just <laughs> said, I, and he just said, I didn't believe him. I, I didn't. I, I knew, and, and in a sense, it's that sort of. I don't think those words mean what you think. No, exactly. exactly, exactly yeah. You keep using that, yeah. and, um, and and that was my actually was my experience as well. So that the sacramental tradition yeah. was not associated with joy for me. Yeah, and then I began reading in the history of the church, encountering so many people for whom they're sort of mm. these almost unutterable moments of revelation of the beauty of who God is. That, I mean, Thomas Aquinas was so wrecked by an encounter he had like that at mass. And obviously I wouldn't celebrate mass the same way as he did, but he didn't even finish his major theological work because he said, I can't say anything now because I've seen this. And I thought, and that's not unique. There's a lot of people whose experiences of the joy of God came at the table or came in communion with the historic faith. At the same time, as there are lots of people who have these wonderful charismatic experiences of joy unspeakable, filled with glory. Yeah. And it's the joy that reaches the face is a phrase I like using. A yeah. friend of mine used. And I just think a that- A joy that reaches the face. Yeah. So good. Because, because often people do say joy is like, it's almost like not the same thing as happiness because right. happiness is, yay! Yeah, yeah, and joy yeah, right. is like, I'm joyful. And, <laughs> it's and very think, intellectual. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a risk of sounding like, like that's another, I don't think I it don't means th- what you think it means. <laughs> right. And so I felt like there is a gift argument for embracing both the sort of the sacrament yeah. and the spirit, but there's also a joy-based argument. I think that different people find the beauty and the resonance in, in different aspects of the tradition. So having that sort of early childhood memory of the sacramental being mm. dead and dry mm-hmm. and not what they said it was, or at least in your experience, and then finding the life in sort of the charismatic traditions, how did you rediscover the gift and the joy of sacramental traditions? For me, it actually became, there was an intellectual or a a sort of theological imperative that probably started it for me, a a sense that this thing that the early church all did and that the historic church has all done and that we don't really embrace, we must be missing something and we need to do it. And even though I don't particularly at the moment feel like this is a great moment of encounter. And then, of course, being a charismatic sort of church context I'm pastoring in, our team and, you know, wider leaders are really going, so how are we going to do this then in a way that doesn't make it feel like we are, you know, happy, happy happy, clappy would be, you know, through a lot of the meeting and then suddenly we all go weird. We're really somber at the end. So how are we going to not do that? And in a sense, we then had to learn what process, what, you know, what shape, what liturgy, what, even to me, I talk in the book a little bit about this, but I think the power of music in helping those from a charismatic tradition. Yep. That's right. Make feel like something is worship. Yeah. Do, do you know it's very strong? I, I've said that so many times to people who've come from that kind of background, the charismatic background, and are trying to work in some of the liturgical and to say, don't let the keyboard player stop playing. Like keep right, it going. Right. Say these words with the same sort of meaning and emotion as you would your own spontaneous words. So Andrew, are you telling us that you helped King's Church kind of make the 
transition into a more sacramental presence or I, were they already on the way? No, I, I think, well, I think in a sense, I was going through much of this sort of exploration while I was still in Eastbourne. So I've okay, only been sure. at the church in London okay. for two and a half years. And I think that's something we did together. I think I yeah. was committed to it theologically and yeah. probably would have been an influential voice in it. But I think collectively we were going, we just, even right now, I, I left two and a half years ago as a teaching mm. pastor. Yeah. But right now they're going through the series on the on the Nicene Creed. Wonderful. Wow. And, and that's not, I didn't initiate it. The right. senior pastor yeah. said, I think yeah. we should. And it's stuff like that where you think, I don't think that would have happened five years ago. Yeah. But it's wonderful that that's not because I'm going, I'm a theological nerd. Let's make sure. sure we're no, it's no, like, no. I think it's actually got apologetic need for it too. Because yeah, I think, that I think that's true. In the cultural moment we're in, to unless you have deep roots, yeah. yes. you, you're you going to sound like you're just standing on whatever you happen to believe is true. So yeah. to say, actually, all these dead guys are with us on this yeah. has really helped us on all kinds of right. cultural issues. Yeah. But it's a little bit disingenuous to do that and then not say, and right. we're now going to practice this. Yeah, thing. I want to ask you a question because I think that some of the pastors who are listening to this might be curious, those that are kind of beginning the journey. In talking to charismatic folks and leading your congregation through this, what sorts of apologetics almost did you use for the importance of the table fixing that within the charismatic tradition? I think the Lord's Supper is the lovely thing where I think everybody knows. I don't. There's not a theological yeah. debate unless you're obviously in a deliberately non-church in what, like the Salvation right. Army where you don't practice the sacrament. Right, right, right. But if you... Like everybody who's a church goes, I know this is something we're supposed to do. Yeah. The question is how. Yeah. And, and how often. And, and how often. Right. And in our tradition, we just said that's something you do in homes. Right. It's very Acts 2 sort of model. Oh. But I think in a sense then, the case that needed to be won was that which we do not practice on Sunday ultimately will look like we do not value. That's just, I think yeah. that's a reality. Right. Yes. Of, and I think the same true of the gifts actually. And you can say all you like about this happens elsewhere in the life of the church. But somewhere it mm. needs to be, we need to do this at some point on Sundays. Otherwise the church will think this is relatively unimportant. And so that's actually the apologetic argument that be, mm. we, and I think many of us got there at the same time. We should do this. Mm -hmm. It was then a question of how we're going to do it in a way that doesn't make everybody go weird. And music, as I say, yeah. and, and actually doing it after the sermon, yes. which I think historically yes. we would have done it in the middle of the singing time yes. before the, right, before right, the right. message. And, but as I think often the sermon can take you there theologically and you want to like literally come to Jesus. The yes. word, yeah, the word preached that leads yeah. you to the word embodied. Yeah. This is why we feel this kindredness with you, Andrew, is because that's the similar thing yeah. to our journey where we had to take the focus off of the one person's charisms, one person's yeah. gifts, mm. and to think about the greatest gift. And so now we use language like we preach toward the table, you know, yeah. and the sermon ends with not a rah, rah, come on, you can do it, but behold what the Lord has done, you know, yeah. behold the Lamb of God yeah. and behold what the Spirit is doing. And so to kind of recap what you're saying, it's almost like the centerpiece to reclaim from the sacramental tradition is the communion table, is the mm. Lord's Supper. Well, I think in my context it was because baptism yeah. was never an issue because it was right. a very strongly, like, in fact, the church I'm in now, planted by Charles Spurgeon, all of these, you know, under the, every site has got under the carpet somewhere there's a baptistry wow. strong emphasis on baptism yeah. membership so that wasn't the issue yeah. actually. there was a i mean obviously it's not the same we are credo baptist but there's a, a very strong baptistic tradition and a very high emphasis on that i think the communion w was less so and i think certainly the more historical as the bells and whistles you know that using <laughs> using prayers or using or church creeds calendar or church, mm -hmm. yeah. and church calendar to be honest we're still not there yeah. i mean yeah. i think i'm reading fleming rutledge on advent at the moment <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah, where she's you know, talking about advent is not the same as christmas no, no it's not and, christmas. and, and our church but i yeah. think a lot of people on our church would have no idea that was a thing. Right, i think right. advent is getting ready for christmas like a calendar the advent calendar yeah so i think there's a i don't want to act like we've suddenly transformed no. into this sort of I see but, yeah. but it works on you over time there's yeah. a there's 
a logic to the sacramental yes. tradition that once you start putting the little pieces at work in the church context, it'll do things over time. You just got to flow with it. And I don't think in my experience, as we led a church through this in Denver, you don't have to force it. No. Mm-hmm. I think if you just flow with what it's mm-hmm. doing, it'll take you where Years ago, there was a business journalist who wrote a book called The Power of Habit, Charles Duhigg. And he talked about a keystone habit where mm-hmm. you change one thing, but it's like this keystone and right. it triggers or sets in yeah. motion yeah, these yeah, other changes. And I think the Lord's table is like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so let's flip this. Let's go the other side. If there's yeah. people listening from the denominational side or traditional side, curious about the gifts. And mm-hmm. I know you gave a paper this week about our miracles still for today. So maybe say something to the person who's, they're, they're not hostile toward it, but they're really afraid, really nervous. Mm-hmm. They've seen all the crazy stuff yeah. and they think, could that even be for today? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In some ways, again, for many people like that, the theological case has to be, I think you, for most people in that position, the reason they're concerned is because of something really good, which is a theological desire for orthodoxy and for lack of nonsense and all that stuff and things are being done in an orderly way. So I think you have to make the theological case first. I think somebody mm. who's, oh, I'm not really, sh- I'm, I'm unpersuaded, is yeah. never going to lead a church in that direction. They're no. going to need to be persuaded first. And that's why I think it's good to reason these things through and go through mm-hmm. the arguments for that. But I think if you get somebody who said, no, I am theolog- like I met, literally an hour ago was talking to a guy saying exactly this. I am continuationist in my theology. That is, I believe the gifts continue, but I have no real idea how to lead the yeah. smallish yeah. Baptist church I lead in that kind of direction, given yeah. that many of them are very nervous about it. And they've right. never heard of you, but they have heard of the guys on God channel, you know, doing mad <laughs> things or whatever it might be. And, right. and, that, and that's the, how do you do it? And obviously in some ways I yeah. feel like I'm feel a bit unqualified to answer the question, yeah. but I have a few things which I think help. One of the, I talk about um, in the book a little bit about, you've got to pick low hanging fruit. So you've yeah, got to yeah. distinguish between somebody shouting out in tongues in the middle of a meeting yeah. from their seat, which right. just, even in a charismatic church will freak a lot of people out. Totally. Right? Yes. And the judicious careful use by somebody who they probably recognize and trust already right. of a prophetic impression, which might yeah. you might even not even call it prophetic. Yes. You might just yes. say, I believe God's just put on my heart that. <laughs> right. Most people, no matter how conservative, are happy with the idea that God Oh, leads totally. them and speaks to them to do something, even if they don't like the language of prophecy. It's a kind of making a spectrum. So that's one yeah. thing. I actually think the comment I made before about music is true in this direction as well, yeah. where I think that the idea of sort of what we would, at a charismatic church, would call a ministry time. Right. Again, facilitating a sense of ease in yeah. people that we're just, well, I'm going to you know, be quiet for a moment, just going to allow God to move because he's going to touch people and he's alive right. today. We'd love to pray. Could we just pray for that brother or sister over there? If you're yes. there, you might stretch out a hand towards them. You don't have to run over to them, shout yes. and rape. Yeah. So there's loads of sort of obvious ways, just being sensitive in a way to the fact that a lot of people, this is very new. Yeah. And something we've learned a lot from the vineyard is Wimber was great at it. Brothers like you know Mike Pelavacci is very yeah. good at it. People yeah. like that who are just got a strong ability to explain right. in a very non-weird way what yeah. God is doing in a meeting. But this is also, I think, where the sacramental and the liturgical and the historical really help us. Because if you have the patterns of worship that are theologically rich and responsible, then I think it. My experience has been that it kind of takes the it takes the anxiety out of the room for people. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is not the service is not going to fly off into some bizarre direction. But we have, there's order here. And Paul says, do yeah. everything decently and in, in order, order fitting, yeah. fitting and in order. Embracing so, the gifts doesn't mean going wild and crazy. No, and, it doesn't. And, and actually, just to be candid, the last few years of getting to visit churches in England and seeing the charismatic expression there has mm. been so healing for me. Yeah, Because really. I was in an environment years ago in Tulsa 
where you just saw all the excesses. You saw yep. the theatric. Everything was dramatic and theatrical. Mm. Yeah. And a service would get hijacked by somebody's yes, ego or idea. And, about, and it was yeah. manipulative. Yep. They were trying to work the crowd. And yeah. I never let go of the belief in the spirit. But but you kind of become a little more tentative. Yeah, yeah. But seeing the expression, uh, you know, in the UK, and maybe it's the British personality. Maybe it's that the, the, <laughs> the, the theology and tradition is already the furniture yeah. in the room. And yeah. and you, you know, you remember that old renewal metaphor of the banks of the river, right? Right. Mm-hmm. They let the river flow, but we need some banks, banks. or it's just going to go. Every, every, the water's going to go everywhere. So scripture and sacrament kind of become these banks for yeah. the flow of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they do, and I think that in its own way, then it's snowballs because people yeah. do feel a little bit they do feel safer and they feel like they're going to be things are going to be explained they're going to be theologically defended and i think one other language just to throw out there that we found helpful from another pastor in the uk which is the distinguishing between deep end and shallow end contexts which is a swimming mm-hmm. pool metaphor i suppose but yeah, yeah. saying actually sunday is probably a shallow end context yes. for you most yes. people can't swim in charismatic terms they actually right. maybe the same is true in sacramental terms too actually but, <laughs> but they would say most people can't swim and so you want to make it easy for people to come in and not drown mm-hmm. but you may have other settings in church life and mm. the midweek prayer meeting yeah. in our culture is quite yes. a strong and it's yeah. a good context for that where you say we can take more risks here we can yes. be more experimental yeah. because yes. people are not so nervous everyone there's a believer in fact it's probably the core believers who come yes. and if something does go a bit wrong the whole church isn't going to fall apart you can shepherd people through but it's not as vulnerable as the Sunday setting where there's kids yeah. and there's guests and there's you know, all that so that's another thing that I think we we found helpful. I love that. How can people keep up with your work, Andrew? I know you're active on Twitter and your blog as well, and you do a conference yeah. in the UK. Tell us about the ways to get your resources. So my blog is thinktheology.co.uk, and I post there a, you know usually a couple of times a week, three times a week, something like that. Um, my Twitter handle is at ajwtheology. And the church I, I'm a pastor at is King's Church London, so sometimes people follow along on podcast mm. on that. And when um, is the book coming out? Yep. And the book is coming out in January and actually has a oh, it's fun. pre-ordered now. Like it's got a website, spiritandsacrament.com. If you hear it and you want to pre-order it, it'd be it'd be great. But yeah, I'm really excited about it because I am in faith that God will use it to help people who are trying to manage this exact so challenge great. tension we're talking about. Andrew, would you give a final encouragement to any pastors out there that are listening to this? Yeah, I think receive the good gifts that God has given to yeah. the extent that you're persuaded they're gifts. And yeah. if, obviously, if you're not, you don't want to do it. But if you are, just it's good to just to receive every good gift comes from above, doesn't it? It's, it comes from the Father of lights. There's nothing wrong with any good thing that God has given. And just be open to receive what God has. Wonderful. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is always to strengthen and provoke the thinking of church and ministry leaders. And so if you found this or any episode helpful to you, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Your reviews help leaders just like you find our podcast. And if you have any comments or suggestions on people or topics you'd like for us to cover, be sure to let us know via social media. And of course, please do share this and other episodes you find helpful around the web. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. (laughs) 